right, so welcome back to another episode of the Parasite Doc Podcast. And today we're actually going to talk about parasites. It occurred to me that we haven't yet had a conversation. I know those of you who follow me on my Instagram channel or my TikTok channel, I have had the conversation about parasites with you. We've dived into many different topics, but there's some basic elements that I'd want to provide for you here. So the first thing when we're talking about parasites that I want to talk about is the diet and the dietary recommendations with any parasite cleanse. So like I said, if you followed me on TikTok, I have covered this topic. If you want um, something more in depth on, you know, the steps, that's also on my TikTok, that's also on my um, Instagram. And then I also put together a course. So for those of you who want a step-by-step process for parasite cleansing and you want to know all the cautions, the warnings, the everything to do, the diet, um, the supplements to use, check out my course. My course is available at www.drmeliniegarrett.com and it's called the Parasite Doc Course. I really put that together as a library for people who are interested in parasites who want a more in-depth step-by-step process. So you have the um, available information when it comes to troubleshooting and that kind of stuff because as I've mentioned before on my social channels, parasite cleansing is not something that you want to take lightly, right? I think a lot of us think that it's this very simple process that we can just take, um, you know, a parasite cleanse off the shelf and everything is good to go. You really need to know what you're doing because I have seen in my experience something called Herxheimer reactions. So if you are new to this and I'm talking something that's completely, you know, another language to you, I'm going to fill you in. So don't worry. So Herxheimer reactions, what are they? Well, you can do a simple Google search, but essentially the basis of a Herxheimer reaction is when you go in and you kill something, you're going to have a release of substances. So for instance, a parasite. Parasites are not just parasites themselves, right? They, They take on things that are in the body. Particularly, they take on heavy metals, they take on viruses, they take on bacteria. So that mass of that parasite within it is not just the parasite itself, it's all of the stuff that they've taken on. And if you are familiar with parasites, A lot of people will describe the importance of a binder, right? A binder for a parasite cleanse. And this is done strategically because as you go in and you kill that parasite and you release all the contents that the parasite has, which is those heavy metals, those viruses, those bacteria, now you have the swarm of that, right? Now you have that problem that you have to handle. So you want a binder that's going to be able to bind these particulate matter essentially and help it come out of the body as you do that process. So a binder is so, so important when it comes to Herxheimer reactions. So back to Herxheimer reactions, what are they? They are Uh, essentially organism die-off. So as you start to kill an organism, right? And this can be the same for candida. This can be the same for parasites. Anything that you're going in and you're disrupting the ecosystem, you're going to get something called a Herxheimer reaction. So as you kill things off, something is going to happen. That's essentially what a Herxheimer reaction is. Common symptoms for a Herxheimer reaction are diarrhea. We see the flu-like symptoms, which is very, very common. Some people, when they go ketogenic, they have something called the keto flu. This is also interrelated. It can be electrolytes, but it can also be pathogen die-off. So we've got flu-like symptoms. We've got joint pain. We can have headaches, migraines. Um, The flu-like symptoms, like I said, which are the night sweats or the heat sweats, these are all things that are showing that the par- the parasites or the organisms are dying off and now these things are in your system. So 
one thing that we do want to do when we're doing a parasite cleanse is we want to have strategy, right? So we want to know that whatever we're doing has purpose and that we know what the outcome is going to be. So if we know that there, there's a potential for, for, for instance, Herxheimer reactions, then we want to minimize the Herxheimer reactions when we go in and kill things. So like I mentioned, binders are one of the best ways to do this. The other thing that I actually didn't mention is the holding on of mold. So any particulate matter, like I said, like mold, we did parasites, um, sorry, not parasites, bacteria, viruses, heavy metals, all of those things that are found in the parasite. So when you release them, then they're going to be in the system. So Cellcore is my favorite binder. It's because I haven't honestly found anything else on the market that equals the scientific research that Cellcore has done. This company is excellent. It is top of the line. It has sourced its products properly. It has done the proper scientific testing. So for instance, if we're looking at a binder and the binder's main goal is to bind essentially the heavy metals, then you have to make sure that whatever is in that binder has not previously bound the metals, right? Because you don't want to be ingesting heavy metals. That's where scientific testing comes in. So Cellcor does the testing and they release all of their data sheets to practitioners. So I have read them, I have looked at them, and there are very, very low levels and like the micro level of any heavy metals in their binders. So their binders are top of the line. I trust them. They're great. That's important to me as a practitioner and also as a patient that whatever I'm ingesting is not only having a purpose, but it's high quality. So again, if you're interested in the cell core protocols, I have that step-by-step -step in my course. And I also, I share that information on TikTok and Instagram. So for the binders, the binder's job is to, like I said, bind the matter and take it out of the system. So you want a strong binder like humic or fulvic acid. So there's different binders for different functions. And I've also posted this on my social channels. So certain binders will be great for metals. Certain binders will be good for um, parasite particulate. Some of it will be good for mold. So you want to strategize. If you are somebody who has a lot of mold exposure, for instance, then you're going to go towards the binders that can help with that. So the Cellcore binders, it, it's essentially strategized in a way that Binders help clean out the minimal debris and then they work on the deeper levels. So there's four binders on the cell core protocol. You start with a biotoxin binder and then you work your way up and it helps you kind of move through the different layers. If you're somebody who's not doing cell core, then you want to look again, like I said, at the issue that you're facing. So if you have black mold exposure, you have a history of high um, mycotoxin exposure, which could be from the food that you're eating, like coffees or corn or any um, oats or barley, that kind of stuff, then you want a mycotoxin binder. And when we're talking about mycotoxin binders, we're looking at the activated charcoal, we're looking at our coriella, we're looking at potential um, use of probiotics. So great probiotics for mold or Saccharomyces boulardiae. Um, there's the bentonite clay. So this is where having strategy and whatever you're targeting is really, really important. So 
we've learned about the binders and now we want to go in and we want to kill these parasites. So it's good to have foresight on the type of parasites that you might be dealing with. And parasites will show you essentially what they are through symptomatic presentation or previous history. So the most common parasite, for instance, in children is pinworms. Pinworms cause the anal itching. You will see a pinworm on a tape test if you've done it properly. Um, they are nocturnal, so it tends to activate more at night. If you have had a latent pinworm infection and you have killed it with something, for instance, that's over the counter like Combatrin, you have not always rid yourself of the problem. So they might be gone, for instance, there, but they could still be in the system. The other common parasite that I see is Toxoplasma gondii. Toxoplasma gondii is the parasite that is related to cat feces. So one of the things when I'm looking, when I'm sitting with a patient and I'm looking at their history and I go, do you have any animals in the house? Do you have any history of cats or dogs or have you been on a farm? What is your exposure to animals? Nine times out of 10, there will be an exposure to a cat with symptoms that present with Toxoplasma gondii. So Toxoplasma gondii is considered the mind controlling parasite. The reason it got this name is because when studies were done on feline animals or cats or rats, um, they saw that it had the capacity to overtake the behavior of its host. So for instance, in the study that I did read, there was rats essentially who were going towards the feline, so towards the cats. So this is not primal instinct, right? If you are a rat, you are going to want to run away from the cat because your primal instinct is that this cat is dangerous, I am going to be breakfast, and I need to get away from it. But what they were seeing with Toxoplasma gondii is that the rats were not afraid of the cat. They were actually going towards the cat. So they were decreasing their survivability and increasing the prevalence of the, of the parasite transmission, right? Because essentially the parasite wanted to move from the rat to the cat. And the best way to do that is to make sure that the rat is seen by the cat so that it can then move to its intermediate host. So that's where it got its name, the mind controlling parasite. What's really interesting in the research now is we're seeing a potential connection to the disruption of neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are those important brain chemicals. Those are our serotonin, our dopamine, our happy hormones essentially, are things that help our brain function properly. So as it disrupt these brain chemicals or these happy hormones, we develop psychiatric or neuropsychiatric conditions such as bipolar, we see borderline personality disorder, um, potential predisposition for anxiety and depression. So we're seeing this really interesting correlation between this parasite particularly in the brain as well as in the gut and the correlation to mental health conditions. So what I find really fascinating about this research is we can kind of reverse engineer it, right? So if you look at a patient's history, you're oftentimes going to see that exposure to cats. Like nine times out of 10, I have somebody sitting in front of me who's dealing with either borderline or bipolar, and there's a history of cat exposure. And it can be previous cat exposure. So it can be something that like they grew up with a childhood cat or they had a cat for 10 years or they currently in this time in, in time in history have a cat as well. So usually it's traceable. 
And then you also see the symptomatic presentation, right? They've been diagnosed with bipolar. They've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Sometimes we see narcissistic behavior, which is also a common attribute in narcissistic or sorry, borderline personality disorder. There's a predisposition for anxiety and depression. So what I'm saying clinically is it's interesting to see the pattern because the job as a practitioner is often to see patterns too, right? It's an, I'm a huge pattern person. I like to see the patterns that are common in people with, for instance, borderline personality disorder, the patterns that are common in bipolar, the patterns that are common in anxiety. These patterns give me context, but these patterns also help me get a better understanding of what's going on at the root, right? It's like a reverse engineer of, for instance, a mechanic, they're going to reverse engineer the problem so that they can fix the car. And that's where I feel like practitioners, that's what our job is to do, right? It's to reverse engineer what's going on in the body so that we can understand what's going on with the body so that we can then change that, heal that part so that moving forward, the condition is no longer in existence. So, Where I was going with the neurotransmitters is these are really important and it's really important when it comes to gut health, right? So we're getting to that place in science where we're having the discussion about the gut-brain connection. I would say more so in the last decade, this is something that's hit the radar of the science community, which is very exciting to me. I want to say, I would say nine times out of 10, but 10 times out of 10, there's underlying gut issues in every single mental health patient that I see. When the gut is disrupted, you have the opportunistic pathogens move in, right? So you have your parasites, you have your candida overgrowth. Candida overgrowth is primarily associated with chronic antibiotic use. And when I'm talking about antibiotic use, I'm talking about instances where we've used antibiotics more than 10 times. And I would say the vast majority of people that I see have seen have taken antibiotics in their lifetime more than 10 times. Antibiotics, especially with childhood ear infections, childhood streptococcal infections, um, surgeries, like you can just add up the amount of antibiotics and the amount of exposure that people have had to antibiotics. Now, I'm not saying that antibiotics are bad because they are 100% life-saving and they are a fantastic medicine. But the problem with antibiotics is our lack of awareness of how it impacts the gut microbiome and how that shift in the gut microbiome is influencing overall mental health and neuropsychiatric health. So one of the main things to do when you're dealing with an antibiotic round is great companies like um, Genestra have formulated post-antibiotic use probiotics. There's other probiotics on the market and I have posted about the different strains of probiotics, the different functions in these probiotics and how to properly use a probiotic depending on what you're trying to target. But for the instance of a post-antibiotic run, you want to essentially replete the most important strains. So we're looking at our lactobacillus acidophilus and our bifidobacterium. Those are the two strains in the gut that are permanent residents. So you want to make sure that those are strong and good before you go in and add the other multi-strains, which can be your lactobacillus um, rahamoses, there's brevis, cassier, there's a whole bunch of different strains for different functions. But you want to make sure that the gut microbiome is stable, right? And this is like the first foundation. So when we're working in health, there's a foundational process, right? And even when we're talking about parasite cleansing, you have to work from the foundation. The foundation is essentially the gateway that allows whatever you're going to do next to work. So when I'm talking about the foundations of a parasite cleansing, 
I'm talking about our drainage pathways, right? I'm talking about your ability to eliminate from the liver, your ability to eliminate bowel movements. Huge red flags for me are constipation and diarrhea in a patient. If the patient is struggling with constipation or diarrhea, or if they're struggling with an inability to sweat, or they're not able to get their heart rate up, and they're not able to breathe properly, there's like shortness of breath, we need to work at those foundations. We need to get those mitochondria up and running. We need to make sure that the drainage pathways are good, the lymphatics are flowing, so that when I go in and I kill a parasite or I kill a pathogen, I have to make sure that it's getting out of the body. Otherwise, I'm going to increase the toxicity of that person because I have not opened the pathways of elimination. So this is super, super huge. Same when it comes to the gut, right? So if I'm looking at a mental health condition, if I'm looking at borderline personality disorder, or I'm looking at narcissistic behavior, or I'm looking at anxiety and depression, my foundation is the gut because 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. This is science. We know that this is true. So if I know that much hormone is made in the gut, I need to make sure that that gut is functioning good so that amount of hormone can essentially be produced properly and what am I going to do if I'm looking at the gut and it's imbalanced then I want to fix it right I want to take if there's candida overgrowth I've got to remove the candida I've got to put good strains into it and I have to make sure that the hormones are balanced with medicine we work from a very preventative or sorry not a very preventative we work from a very cause and effect standpoint right and I have no issues with that what I am saying is that we typically look at the body right? And then we evaluate the status of the neurotransmitters. So for instance, an SSRI, a uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor, that essentially increases the level of serotonin in the body, the amount of serotonin swimming around in the body. It works fantastic if our gut is out of balance, right? Because if our gut is out of balance and we're dealing with an underlying potentially SIBO, or we're dealing with an underlying leaky gut, and we have a disruption in our serotonin pathway, then if we go and add serotonin to the system, we're going to normalize our levels, right? So if we have a depletion and we go in and we add more serotonin to the system, so essentially an SSRI keeps serotonin in the system longer. So instead of breaking it down, which is the normal process of a neurotransmitter breakdown, we're going to keep it in the system longer so that you have more serotonin to essentially deal with in the system. And that's fantastic if somebody is dealing with a serotonin depletion because of poor gut health. But if we're looking at a preventative perspective, right, we, we kind of want to do both. So let's fix the serotonin issue because your serotonin is depleted and you have a symptomatic presentation, whether it's anxiety or depression. So let's give you some serotonin in the meantime to help bring your mood up to stability, right, to get you to a place where you don't feel so crappy. But at the, at the interim, right, let's fix the gut. Let's fix what's going on in the gut. If there's inflammation, if there's issues with um, pathogens, if we do have parasites, if we do have viruses, if we do have bacteria, if we have mold exposure, like what is going on in the gut, let's fix that. And then as the serotonin levels initially normalize, right, because as you fix the gut, your serotonin production should come back into balance. And as that happens, we can then decrease the amount of serotonin that we're, we're keeping in the system, right? Because we're now healing from the more root issue rather than the external issue, which is the, the lack of serotonin, right? So this is just one principle of how 
foundationals are really, really important, right? We want to make sure that that is good so that when we move to the next steps, then we can kind of play with the parameters that are off there. So where I was going with Toxoplasma Gondii is we're seeing a connection also with Toxoplasma Gondii and the absorption of neurotransmitters. So particularly serotonin seems to be the one that makes it the most mobile. The other interesting element is melatonin, the uh, utilization of melatonin and serotonin in parasites. So melatonin is our universal hormone. It is a hormone that's often abused um, over counter. A lot of people take melatonin. I'm not a fan of taking melatonin. I do not think that is the solution, but it can be a temporary solution for people who have shift work or poor circadian rhythm um, due to, like I said, shift work or night shift or that kind of stuff. So when we're talking about melatonin, melatonin, you need a certain level to sleep, right? So melatonin, when it's not in a proper balance or it's being eaten up, we're going to have insomnia. So insomnia essentially is our inability to sleep, right? So, I mean, many of us have probably experienced sleep issues. I would say that's one of the most, the most prevalent concerns that I have uh, when I'm, you know, one-to-one with patients. So as our melatonin becomes compromised, so say something's eating melatonin, we're depleting that, that hormone that's supposed to kick in essentially um, by a variation. So melatonin will actually kick in around 8 o'clock, sometimes 6 o'clock, and will start to increase. So it starts to create that relaxation in the body, but it also starts to create that sleepliness, or sleepiness, right? So that sleepiness kicks in. If that's not happening in the body, and that can also happen because of other things like cortisol dysregulation, but if that's not happening in the body, then you are going to be more awake and you are going to be more alert. Now, this is the fascinating thing is because nine times out of 10, again, I know I say nine times out of 10, maybe it's eight times out of 10. This is not a specific statistical quote. This is just an observation. But nine times out of 10, when I talk to people about parasites, there is a increase in activity during the moon cycles. And this has been talked about in the alternative medicine community too, about an influence, an increase in activity during the full moon cycles. So what, what, what do the lunar cycles have to do with these hormones? What do they have to do with increased activity? Well, as the parasites become increasing in activity, so serotonin increases the mobility of the parasite. So as it binds to serotonin, so it's taking your serotonin and it's binding to it, it's going to be able to, it's going to be able to move, right? So we have our serotonin getting depleted and it also loves melatonin. So it's going to eat the melatonin or latch onto the melatonin. We're going to have a decrease in both of those hormones in the system. So as serotonin depletes, right, we get more anxiety, we get more depression. As melatonin depletes, we become more sleepless. So we're having more insomnia. And when you ask people during the full moon, and I had this as a personal experience, I always knew when the full moon was coming because I would have insomnia. It would be, it was like clockwork. I didn't even have to track the moon. I didn't have to know anything. It was two nights before the full moon, I was not sleeping. And then the night before I was not sleeping, the full moon would happen and I would be able to sleep again. And what's happening is I actually had parasites in my gut. I had a huge history of exposure to parasites. That was from both dietary. I had pinworms as a kid. 
And then I also had exposure from cats and animals. So I had quite the history of parasites. So what was happening is my serotonin was being depleted. So I was actually having an increase in anxiety around the full moon. And I was noticing this around people as well. And I was having issues sleeping. So scientifically, it's really interesting to see that kind of correlation between parasites and what you're experiencing physically. Other physical symptoms can be uh, teeth grinding. That's a huge one. So bruxism. There's no like known origin to teeth grinding. We don't really, we can't really put our finger on why certain people teeth grind, why certain people don't. Uh, it's very common to put anxiety in that picture and say that, you know, chronic anxiety and chronic worry can increase a propensity for teeth grinding, which is true. Um, but if we're looking like a little bit deeper, if we're looking a little bit further, there's often parasites and anxiety working together. And it's the parasites that are triggering the anxiety, which are triggering the teeth grinding. The other huge one is the mineral depletion. So when we're looking at chronic pictures of mineral depletion. So one of the best ways to see if somebody is minerally deficient is to look at their eyes. If I'm looking at somebody's eyes and there's huge, deep, dark circles and deep bags, they are not eliminating and their minerals are off. If you remineralize someone and you get that level to normal, the dark circles will go away. So with the minerals, bugs like minerals, right? So one of the most common things I see with people is a chronically low iron level. And my main concern with iron is, well, we know it's a heavy metal, right? So parasites bind heavy metals. So if we have a high parasite load, it's going to take on that level or it's going to take on that mineral. So as it binds the parasites or it eats, or sorry, as the parasites bind the metals or eat the metals, we're going to have chronically low levels of iron. And what I find really interesting about iron is I see this all the time and I have seen it more frequently in women. It does happen in men too, but particularly women who are having normal cycles. So if we're looking at all of the parameters of what can cause low iron, we're going to look at menstruation, right? So what ways are you eliminating iron from the body? So if you are a heavy bleeder, right, and you're bleeding a lot, well, we know that the blood is filled with iron. So if you are bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, then low iron levels can correlate with that, right? Which makes sense because if you're losing it, well, then you're going to have lower levels. The other thing with iron is if somebody is not bleeding as much, right? So we have a normal level of iron and we have a diet that is low in iron, right? So that's our veganism, our vegetarianism. One misconception with vegan vegetarian is that you need meat products for iron. There are fortified foods or there are foods that are quite high dosed in iron. It can just be the concentration that people are eating. So they often don't eat enough of that food in order to hit the appropriate iron level. So if we have a vegan vegetarian that's low in iron, it can also be that they're just not getting enough from their dietary requirements. So if we ruled out both of those, right, we're not dealing with a vegan vegetarian and we're not dealing with a heavy bleeder, then my question becomes, where is the iron going, right? Like where is, there should be iron in the body. Where is it going? So what are we gonna do? 
we're going to supplement it because if the low is if the level is low right we want to bring it up so we're going to go and we're going to go get a supplement and we're going to supplement those iron levels so this is where it gets really interesting to me because it's the clinical cases that are not vegan that are not losing blood that have supplemented iron and now the levels are not budging so we still have chronically low iron even though we are supplementing. My question with that is where is the iron going? There's two things. Iron is absorbed in the ileum, which is a part of the intestine. If there is inflammation, if there is an underlying gut condition or we've had surgical um, removal of the gut, then you're going to have a decrease in that, right? There's other factors like there's pernicious anemia b12 for the absorption but going into the gut there's a physical disruption in the body's ability to absorb right so that's one thing that we have to look at if we are dealing with a, an okay gut and we're still taking iron and we're still not increasing our levels the next question is what is taking the iron Right, And that's where we look at parasites because we know that parasites will eat the iron over and over again, keeping that, that level chronically low. So if you're supplementing, you've got a good quality iron that is absorbable and you've been through all of the stuff, you've been through all of the testing. Like I said, you don't have inflammation, you fixed your gut, you're in a really good place, but you've got this stubborn low iron, you're going to be wanting to think about parasites particularly gut parasites the last thing that I want to talk about here is the transmission of parasites so a lot of people wonder like how do we get parasites parasites are everywhere right when we when we talk about parasites it's often a tropical subtropical disease meaning it happens in environments that are not North America with parasites we have, to in, we have to look at the shift in how humans function, right? There has been a huge shift in importation and exportation. There has been a huge shift in travel. There has been a huge shift in how we do things around the world. We know that things are easily transmissible, right? There's, it can be transmissible through, it depends on the pathogen itself, but through water contaminants, which is the most common, there can be sexual transmission, there can be vertical transmission through placenta from mother to child. So there's lots of ways where these parasites can then become an issue. When we're looking at subtropical regions, so places like Mexico, for instance, it is part of their cultural regime to do a parasite cleanse. That is not uncommon for them. It is something that they do ritualistically um, every six months to a year to make sure that they are being cleansed. Our feline friends, our animals, we do parasite cleansing in, right? We have heartworm. We have all of these medications that our animals take. So why are humans not doing that? That would be my question to pose. The, the other question is, like I said, there's been an increase in importation and exportation. So now we have foods that we never have. We have an increase in sushi. We're dealing with um, fish that's coming from Japan, China, all of these places, right? So we're increasing our exposure. Plus, we're traveling everywhere. People are going all over the place now. There's subtropical destinations, you know, Costa Rica, 
all of these other places that are infested and known to have parasites, people are now traveling to. So why would we not be exposed to them? That's the question that I want to leave with people because I feel like there's going to be this transition where we're going to realize that it's a little bit naive to think that we are, you know, the only ones not dealing with parasites and that's something that's endemic only in certain subtropical areas. And, you know, you know, our feline friends and our dogs and stuff don't influence us. They do. They definitely do. One of the practitioners who wrote a lot about parasites was Dr. Huda Clark. She was uh, heavily criticized and heavily defamed for her analysis on parasites. What I will say is her work is very interesting. It comes from a perspective that, um, you know, parasites play a larger role than what we currently understand. She also looked at the energetic of things. So she came to her discoveries through uh, bioscans, essentially. She was, a, I believe, a physicist of some sort. She was into, I'm wondering if I have it here, actually. She studied biophysics and cell physiology, and she received her doctorate degree in physiology in 1958. In 1979, she left the government-funded research and began private consulting on a full-time basis. Six years later, she discovered an electronic technique for scanning the human body. Today, she puts her methods, results, and conclusions before you. So this book that I have is called The Cure for All Diseases with many case histories. And she has histories of her working with patients and the things that she was realizing um, and finding through her bio scans. I'm a huge fan of clinical testing, putting it to the test. So if you are somebody who is interested, who has an open mind, who wants to learn a little bit more, I suggest getting this book. It's available on my Amazon. I do have it under my favorite books. And it's no harm to learn and to test, right? So like I said, I'm a huge fan of testing. It's interesting to hear alternative perspectives that I perhaps have not opened my mind to in the past. And then seeing, you know, what I see in clinical practice versus what she has said here. So I will say that um, in clinical practice, parasites can be very hard to test, right? The most specific testing method is a bioscan, which is a frequency machine. And not everybody is on board for the frequency machine. It's definitely not mainstream by any means. But it will tell you whether there are pathogens that you're dealing with, and it can tell you the strains of the pathogens as well. So my advice, if that's something that resonates with you, there are very talented bioscan practitioners, especially in the United States that I've connected with. Um, Naturopath Melissa is one of them. I'm trying to get her on my podcast, but she's a very busy lady. And she does some quite in-depth exploration on the parasites and how they show up. And she uses particularly, like I said, a bioscan to um, come about those conclusions. Some other interesting conclusions have been presented by functional med- medicine doctors. There's been talk of uh, multiple sclerosis and its connection to parasites, particularly the pork tapeworm, which is solium tenimium. Um, and its ability to demyelinate as well as its ability to encapsulate itself into kind of a tumor tissue. And there's also been connections to 
um, potential oncology, which is cancer, the role in cancers. Like I said, this book covers some interesting topics. So I come from the perspective of everything is game, everything is testable, um, and the test will give me the conclusions that I need. So I hope this episode was useful. I know I was supposed to talk about diet and I didn't even have time to get into diet. Um, what I will leave you with is there's information on my TikTok and my Instagram. The two diets that I recommend for parasite cleansing are the ketogenic and the carnivore. You always want to make sure, obviously, that you're working with a practitioner because of those Herxheimer reactions that I talked about. Um, and you also want to make sure that your body can handle whatever diet you're on. Carnivore is very extreme. People with um, more infection struggle with carnivore way more than people who don't. Some people can do carnivore. Some people can't. That's where the ketogenic lifestyle is a little bit easier. Um, but I will actually do an episode, I think, separately on the different diets, what they do in the body, and the things that I've learned with those diets as well. So I hope you guys found this episode really interesting. I always love hearing from you if you have any comments from me, um, any topics that you want me to cover, and I will see you for the next episode on the Parasite Doc Podcast. And that wraps up another episode of the Parasite Doc Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. The show wouldn't be possible, obviously, without you guys. We love to hear your feedback. What did you think of the show? What did you think of the topics that we touched on? And we're always open to feedback on things that we could improve on or topics or people that you'd like us to interview. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next time on the Parasite Doc Podcast.